you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 21. So 1 Corinthians 4 and verses 8 through 21. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So I wanted to say this also. Last week, I, in my sermon, in a mode of application about faithfulness, I said something that I thought about, okay? And uh, I thought... Sometimes you can come across a little too strong, or some of you are going to come up to me afterward and say you don't need to say that, but I'm just, I want to qualify one thing that I said. Uh, I was on the topic of faithfulness, and I ask you to ask yourself the question, if everyone in the context of our church family had my level of faithfulness, would we even exist? Okay? Here's what I said. I said, this is my cynical side. Okay? My cynical side is my sinful side, okay? What I, what I was trying to say is this, okay? And I can say it in the positive. It's the same thing, but it's in the positive. And that is, I would like us as a church family to imagine what we would be if we were all committed to faithful service to God in the context of the church family that he has called us to. That's the thing you know, I can say that way as a positive because it really calls it what, what would God begin to do through our church family if we all committed to a high level of faithfulness and commitment to what God is doing through this church family, okay? So that's the challenge. The other side's kind of cynical. If everyone was like you, that's kind of a dark picture for some. So I want to say it, think big. Think what God would do. As we as a church family would step, and step up and say, God, I want you to use me. This morning my sermon is entitled, The Cruciform Life. How many of you have ever heard the word cruciform? Raise your hand if, if you've heard the word. Okay. Is that serious? You're, all, you're not just being shy, right? Okay. Cruciform is an adjective used to describe architectural structures. Okay, in the ancient world, when they would build cathedrals, okay, in the, let's say, first 10, ten centuries of the church, and it still happens today, they would build cathedrals, and the facility was in the shape of a cross. You've probably been in uh, large cathedrals. If you've ever been in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, you know that there's a long structure, and then there are arms that extend out. It's cruciform, okay? It's in the shape of a cross, uh, in the ancient world, in the Byzantine church, very early on, they built their baptism fonts in the shape of a cross so that the person who was being baptized would stand in the upright, longer portion. The people that were doing the baptism would stand in the two arms to the side. The picture always was to proclaim the cross of Christ as central to everything that happens. So when we take that analogy and we start talking about a cruciform life, what we're talking about is a life that is oriented towards the idea of what it means to deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me in the words of Jesus. Okay? That implies that part of my experience as a believer will include seasons of difficulty, sometimes extended seasons of difficulty. So the call that Christ gives to the church is to a cruciform life. And what Paul's going to do in this text, and this is where I'm coming from, what Paul's going to do in this text, once he gets to the center or heart of it, he's going to reflect on his difficult personal experience and use it as an example to confront the pride of the Corinthian church. 
Okay, He's going to use tools like sarcasm and irony in this portion of Scripture. It's rather strong. But his aim in the middle of it is to take his experience, raise it as an example, not as a picture of perfection, not in place of Jesus, but like Jesus. Does that make sense? Cruciform, Christ-like. Okay, So that his suffering becomes a direct confrontation to the pride of the Corinthian church that is threatening to destroy it by dividing it and rendering it so that it would become unuseful. Paul says this, I will not stand to the side. When the church needs correction, I will courageously step up and through my life and through my God-given calling and words, I will speak the truth of God to a divided church, calling them to a united stance in Christ where humility thrives and pride is dying. So let's work our way through this text. Now it's obvious that the church in Corinth, if you remember the verse that we ended last week with, verse 7, Paul said to the church, he said, what makes you different from anyone else? And then he says, and people are starting to think, well, this is different, this is different, my status is different, my education is different, my job is different, my wife is different. You can come up with a whole lot of things. And here's what Paul's going to say, because we're quick to answer that question. What makes you different? Well, I could give a list of things, but here's what Paul says. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Meaning, what do you possess that is not a result at some level of the grace and work of God in your life, so that all that you are, you can't take full credit for who you are entirely. You may have put forth good effort. You may have worked hard. You may have studied hard. But you did it in the context of other people so that you can't take full independent credit for where you stand in life today. There are other people who impacted your life, who poured into your life, who helped to shape your life. And and ultimately, it's a picture of the grace of God. What do you have that you did not receive? And then he asked this question as a pressing it in. He says, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did it by yourself. Okay, that's the thrust of verse 7. So what is Paul saying? He's saying there is no room for pride when you have a Godward perspective, when you have a full understanding of the full picture of your life. You're never going to stand up and say, I am utterly and totally, supremely responsible for who I am. Okay, because that is never the case. And that issue of pride that is found in that type of a statement is what Paul is confronting. So, verse 8, he kind of picks up on the logic of this false pride, this false sense of well-being and prominence that the church in Corinth had. So, look at what verse 8 says. He says, already you have all you want. I want you to know this passage drips with what some have called biting sarcasm. Okay, Paul's not saying you actually have all this. Three times he's going to use the word already. Two of them are stated, one is implied. Okay, so listen to what he says. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. And the idea of you have already begun to reign. You've kind of already uh, assumed your throne by the Father in heaven. Okay, and it, it rings with sarcasm. He says, how I wish that you had already begun to reign so that we might reign with you. 
And then he's going to go into this, his personal experience. So let me just quick set the scene. So what is Paul doing? In those statements, loaded with sarcasm, Paul is saying, you act as if you have already arrived when you really haven't. You act like you're already reigning. You're so smug and self-confident that it's disgusting to me. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I find it offensive. And then he says, I, I wish that you were reigning, because if you were, we would, we would join with you. And, and I want you to notice how, how Paul says this. He says, you're already reigning, and that without us, meaning we came and brought you into a relationship with God through the work of Christ, and you've just simply hopscotched over us, and you've moved on so far beyond us, because that's how they were beginning to think, that their level of spirituality was exalted above and far beyond the accomplishments of others. That is always a dangerous perspective. And so Paul reminds them, in the early church in Corinth, Paul said early, remember this in chapter 3, he said, I laid the foundation and Apollos built upon it. I was there at the beginning. He says, I sowed the seed and Apollos watered it. I was there at the beginning, meaning I had a critical and important role in your life as a church. And what has happened is the church is now looking down on Paul because of the kind of life he lives, cruciform. Okay? And it's causing them to have questions like, well, if Paul's so spiritual, why does he struggle so much? If he's such a great teacher, then why isn't he prospering? Okay? There was this kind of Madison Fifth Avenue kind of view of the church that they had begun to adopt, which, by the way, is very popular in our era. And Paul's really asking the question, why would you be so proud? Here's the truth, folks. Anytime I think I'm already complete or that I have already arrived, that there really may be no more room for progress in my life, I am beginning to wrestle with an insidious form of pride. That it's all about me. And whenever you allow yourself to drift into that pride mindset, you will always have a downward view towards others. You will devalue people. And that's what's going on in the context of this church. It happens in our lives as well. Now, what is Paul going to do? He's going to employ, through his own experience, an ironic set of statements that are meant to confront them, they're, they're going to know that he's being a little biting in what he's saying. Sarcasm is not always wrong, okay? I think it can be, personally for me, it's dangerous. I have tried to kill it in my life, okay? Because when I'm sarcastic, things don't go well, okay? Sometimes you're good at something that you should not be proud of being good at, okay? So it would be better to stifle your tongue and say less, okay? That's a lesson I have learned I'm telling you this. I've learned that lesson repeatedly. Uh, but it is a way of speaking. Okay? It is, it's, 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 it's a way of addressing a topic. And there are times that sarcasm is the only thing someone struggling with pride will hear. You understand what I'm saying? It's the only method of speaking that will crack the facade of pride and get to the heart of the matter. And so Paul is willing to go where he needs to go in order to see the appropriate things that would glorify God happen. Okay? And so <clears throat> here comes 
the way that Paul addresses it. And so first he's saying your pride is an odd response to the favor of God in your life. It's odd for someone who has been blessed and graced by God to end up saying, look at me. Okay, so here's what Paul then says, verse 9. He says, for it seems to me, and that, that for it seems to me is in contrast. So Paul hears what they're saying. They're all there. They're already reigning. They've already arrived. They, they've kind of climbed the hill and come to the pinnacle of what it is to be a follower of Christ. They were exemplars of the faith. And then Paul looks at himself. He's like, he says, for it seems to me, in contrast to that exalted self-assessment, it seems to me that God put us, apostles, who were apostles? They were the accepted, received, or acknowledged God-appointed leaders of the church. There was not in the early church dispute over who was an apostle. It was abundantly clear because they had specific God-given qualifications and measurements. So it was clear. So you start then to get what Paul's saying. It seems to me, like I hear what you're saying. You're already reigning. You're already there. You're already complete. You're, you're all that. But it seems to me, and I'm going to give you the rest of this verse in three words. And God being the actor, God put us last. God put us apostles accepted, acknowledged leaders, last. And here's, I think, what Paul is saying. And I'm good with that. Like, I received that God-given position, that God-appointed place. So there's a couple things that, that then, I think, happen. Number one is that Paul's position is a divine appointment by a sovereign God. He is not in the position of leadership by mistake. He was placed there by God. And then he says, God put us last or on display at the end of the procession. The idea of that is last in line or in the back of the bus. Okay? And Paul is, Paul is not resenting that position that God gave him. He understands it. Right? Paul will later say that, that God had put a thorn in his flesh, a constant problem to keep him from being exalted exalted in pride. Paul knew that he was not all of all that. Paul knew that the struggle that God had brought into his life was an essential part of him being the man that God wanted him to be. And he received it humbly. Folks, that's what, it's take, what it takes. Because what does pride do? Pride resents testing. It resents struggle. It says, why me? Why would I face this? Why not someone else? As if I'm better. So Paul is, in an ironic way, saying, well, it's, it's odd, because since we're the acknowledged leaders, we're last in line. And the idea here is in relationship to social status or class. Okay, because you're going to notice what he does in this text. He says this, God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. Okay, now that's an interesting statement, because that's not how I would talk today. What is Paul referring to? Paul is referring to the end of a season in battle. Roman generals and legions come home, and behind them, historically, they would bring in tow those that had been defeated. 
and essentially humiliated. And they would be typically chained to the chariots of the generals and driven through and drugged through the streets in order to bring them deep humiliation and brokenness. Here's how Paul sees himself. He says, God put us last in line like that to maximize our usefulness in His kingdom. Destined for the arena where they would die at the hands of gladiators for the amusement of the populace. That's the picture. That's the picture. And then the next thing he says is, We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Now, the two angels as well as human beings is simply this. It's it's parentheses around all living beings that observe. Okay? So it's inclusive of everyone who would be watching in heaven and on earth. We have been made, and the word spectacle, I I don't usually give you Greek words, okay? Because I don't think it's really helpful. But this one, I think you'll know what it is right away. Okay, the Greek word is theatre. We get our word, what word do we get from that? Theater, okay? Paul's saying we have been put on this, we've been put in theater, and God in doing that has a purpose to bring transformation into your life. But here's his objection, and the message translation, I think, kind of captures the sense of the, of the sarcasm or, well, the sarcasm that Paul's using. Here's what he says. God put us on display in a theater to make a point. Nobody's buying tickets to see the show. Okay, so God did this to us and for you, but you're not willing to watch and gain experience from the theater that God put in front of you in our lives. And so what he's saying is, it seems odd that you guys would act like all that when we're the acknowledged leaders of the church and God put us last. Do you see? And it's a struggle that I think is common for all of us. Paul, in this way, aims to puncture the the pride and pretension by an honest assessment of God-appointed leaders. Why? Because leaders in the context of church life are appointed by God to emulate and to demonstrate what normal, effective Christian living is to be. That's what we looked at last week, remember? So God appointed us as theater so that you could watch our lives and learn what you should be as well. And the problem is, they weren't buying the ticket, they weren't getting the message of the show. And that is what Paul now seeks to press upon them so that the pride that is so filling this church would not ultimately rend it and destroy it. That's Paul's concern. So why does Paul bring up his life as an example? It's not because Paul's proud. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Read through the the biographical sketches that Paul gives of his own life. There's no way that you're ever going to come away from reading those texts and say, there goes a proud man. He was a man that God, in His sovereign grace and mercy, humbled repeatedly to make Him useful. Don't resent that hand of God in your life. When He breaks you and is trying to shape you, submit to that. Because out of what Marie was talking about earlier, out of those broken pieces, God will raise up a vessel for His glory. Not something that attracts attention to itself, but something that contains a valuable prize in the person of Christ. So here's what Paul says then. He's going to now dip into 
his experience of the cruciform life. This begins in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. We start to get it, right? We are weak, but you're strong. You are honored. And the word honored means well-born. Okay? Acting as if you're in a privileged class. But we are dishonored. And do you get what he's saying? You You guys want all the praise, and we're sitting last in line. And we're good with it. But it's ironic that you would think that you deserve it, or even that you would demand it. Does this sound familiar? I think one of the best experiences God has given me in my life is marriage. I used to think I had my act together. <laughs> and I got a great wife. I'm going to tell you something. I do not have a picky wife. Not, you guys know my wife, okay? I don't know, someone just said this to me recently. You better be, my brother said it to me last night. He said, you better be really grateful for your wife. So here's the insight to how proud I can be. All right. There are times that that sweet woman has to call me out for being essentially a jerk. Because sometimes I just, I, I have a, an inaccurate self-assessment that causes me to act in ways that are hurtful and harmful, that are selfish and prideful. That's where this church is. And what Paul's saying to them is God has allowed experiences to come into my life and into the life of the leaders of the church in Corinth so that they would not be exalted, but that they would continue to serve as examples. And so Paul talks about who they are, fools, dishonored. Verse 11, he goes further. He says, to this very hour... And this is experience related to his Christian ministry. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, meaning all of our needs are not met. We know what it is to struggle. We know what it is to thirst. We know what it is to wish we had a meal. That's what Paul's saying. Why? Because there are times that Paul's experienced the prison life, the difficult struggle. It hasn't broken him. It's built him, but it has built him through things that are difficult and sadly often resisted he says we are in rags we are brutally treated we are homeless we work hard with our hands now that seems like an odd thing in the list right what is paul doing he's painting a picture and hopefully you can step back and you can see the theater You can see the way that Paul portrays himself, even though God has given him a position of authority and influence in the church, it has not gone to his head. He does not think because of what he knows that he is something. He knows by what he's experienced that he is nothing. He says, we work with our own hands. Now, folks, here's what I want you to capture. In the ancient Greek world, And in this church, the parts that Doug preached about at the beginning, about Sophia, remember about wisdom? The goal was to become an orator. And if you were an orator that could capture the affection and applause and money of people, you were somebody. You could write a book and people would buy it. You you had arrived. That was the Greek view of life. 
That's where leaders like Paul should be, but he's not, so there must be something wrong with him, right? Here's what Paul says. He says, we work with our own hands. Why is that, a, why is that in there with in rags, hungry, thirsty? Why? Because in the ancient Greek world, to work with your hands when you were as a teacher was an embarrassment. And Paul's argument to the church in Corinth is going to be this. The reason I worked with my hands to care for our needs was so that you could never say, we provided for them, not God. And so what Paul is after here is, in, in, we work with our own hands. We assume the role of servants in your context. When we were with you, we did not put a burden on you. We worked with our own hands. We thought that was a good thing, but you took it as a bad thing. You saw it as demeaning, as menial, as not having high regard. Well, then Paul not only talks about who he is, but he talks about what he does. How you respond to struggle tells you a lot about your heart. Listen to what Paul says. He says, verse 12, we work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Now, I, I want you to, as I read that, does any bell ring in your mind? You know what rings in my mind? The words of Jesus Christ on the cross. When he was slandered, he opened not his mouth. He never felt that he had to self-defend in relationship to his identity, to who he was. He didn't have to have the respect of people to understand who he was before God, and neither does Paul. That's why I called this Paul's cruciform example, because as you read it, you see Jesus all over the place. And the, so what is Paul doing? He's holding up his cruciform life as an example. Here's how he concludes it. End of verse 13. He says, we have become the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. Now, does Paul have an issue with low self-esteem? I want to assure you something. Paul's not having a problem with self-esteem. Paul knows that God is his father. He knows that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He knows that material things are meaningless in the grand scheme of eternity. He knows those things. And he derives all of his sense of well-being and acceptance from those truths. So did Jesus. That's why on the cross Jesus can say this, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Meaning, I trust you. I give my life to you. That's Jesus. And as you look at Paul's experience, you say, you know what? There's a lot in Paul that emulates the example of Christ and that for Paul was pride-destroying and God-exalting. When Paul says we have become the scum and garbage of the earth, literally the word in some translations says we're potato peels. We're the part that people cut off the potato and throw in the can, or we're the the stuff you scrape out of the pot after you're done and you throw it away. you got to say to yourself, okay, what is Paul doing here? Is, is the, it, what, what's the aim? I think the aim is simply this. And I'm going to say something to you and hopefully it rings another bell for you. This is Paul descending 
so that Christ can be ascending. Folks, you will never find a proud person who exalts Christ well. Ever. So what's the bell? Here's the bell. John chapter It's one or three, I'm sorry, I can't remember which chapter it is. John the Baptist said this of Jesus. He said, divine imperative, he must increase and I must decrease. Folks, when you capture the glory of exalting Christ, you will pay any price for that to happen in your life. The greatest joy of your life will not come through self-exaltation. There's something odd feeling about self-exalting because what you may do is push yourself beyond your degree of competence and then you'll feel embarrassed and exposed. You know what Paul says? He said, I'll I'll walk this humble road so that Christ can be exalted. If my suffering, if my struggle, if my lack, if my want can point to the soul satisfaction of Jesus... If it can exalt him as the bread of life and as the water of life, Paul says, in my life, so be it. I don't know if any of you watched the uh, speech by A.B. Simpson at Herbert Walker Bush's funeral. If you never watched it, go watch it. Here's what he said about George W. Bush. He said this, Herbert Walker Bush, sorry. He said, if you travel the high road of humility... In Washington, D.C., you're not likely to encounter heavy traffic. Okay, if you travel the high road of humility in life, you're not likely to get frustrated by heavy traffic. You see, the road that Paul traveled was the road that most people won't choose because we're too fixed on temporal things. And we're too resistant to the biblical concept of growing through trials, being completed, being matured through trials. We're too resistant to that in the church in America today. Paul said in verse 11 and verse 12, Paul says to this very hour and right up to this moment, all of that is still true as Paul writes. He's not writing as someone who is beyond the struggle and now can talk about like, whoa, (laughs) that's what I went through. Paul's saying, to this moment, that's my life. To this very hour, I am openly accepting that struggle, that definition of who I am, that response. I am openly and freely receiving that so that you incarnate in the church can see the hand of God in my life. And so that you can safely Imitate me as, he will say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, as I follow Christ. Why does Paul talk about this experience? I think it's because Paul wants them to understand how powerful it is to walk the low and humble road, to realize what a Christ-exalting path it can and is. It can be and is. So can I ask you a question this morning relates to our contemporary culture in the church? How would... The Church of America, largely speaking, you know, the Madison Fifth Avenue Church, how would they assess Paul? If they today were to have a speaker come and say, this is my life, guarantee you they wouldn't ask him to write a book. They wouldn't ask him to be the pastor of a large church. 
They would probably tell him if he simply had enough faith, he could have his best life now. He could have a life of health and prosperity now. The problem with that view of life is it strives to take heavenly treasure and make it a present reality. I'm not saying that sowing and reaping don't lead to consequences, sometimes good ones. Okay? I'm not saying that faith is not important. Okay? But if you believe that if I have enough faith, my life will begin to overflow with prosperity and well-being, then you do not understand Paul's experience. You've bought a gospel that is, I will say this, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. If the gospel aims to make me wealthy, and I only know that I'm blessed by God and walking with God if I'm wealthy, I don't know what to do with the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Prayer is not for prosperity. This prayer is enough for the day. I cannot understand in light of this false theology of prosperity why Paul would say warn those who are rich to not be conceited and overwhelmed by the power and effect of money in their lives. I don't have a place to put that verse. I can't apply it to life. If I think that prosperity and huge blessing today is the aim and end of the Christian life, I end up perverting the purpose of salvation. I make it about me. Does that make sense? That God is good if I am blessed. And what Paul's saying is God is good in this circumstance of brokenness and pain and suffering. It's why Paul, or why James will say in James 1, count it all joy when you experience various trials. Let trouble have its perfect work that you may be complete, lacking nothing. Through what? Through the struggle that we typically and quickly pray to be delivered from. So be careful that you submit to a sovereign God as Paul did. God put us last as apostles, sovereignly. God puts circumstances into our lives. It's appropriate for us to pray, God, according to your will. I would love to experience your deliverance. And we pray for that faithfully. For those that are struggling with emotional needs and physical, we pray for that regularly. We pray that for ourselves. But when the troubles come, don't resent them. I'm going to quote a famous theologian, Lionel Richie. I heard him say this recently. He said, when struggles come, don't ask why it happened to you, which is victim mentality. Ask why it happened for you. Now, I am not quoting the Bible there, okay? But I want to tell you something, because I was preparing for this when I heard that quote. It made me stop and ponder. It didn't happen to you. You're not a victim of difficult circumstances. You're the child of a sovereign God. So you should be asking God, why did you do this for me and for those in my sphere of influence? 
What lesson, what message, what truth do you want to clarify for those around me and for me through this struggle so that I am not immediately first thing praying for deliverance? No, it's not the aim of Christian living. The aim of Christian living is to become like Jesus. And if it takes trials to get me there, so be it. I was watching a woodturner on YouTube. I don't I don't do this often. I had let my computer on. I watched a, a video, uh, a YouTube video about putting a sliding basket in the kitchen because my wife has had hers broken for 15 years. Okay? And I said, I'm going to watch. And I left the thing running. And when I came back, it was on wood turning. Okay? Like putting stuff on a lathe and spinning it. Here's what I noticed when I watched. This guy took a $10 block of wood and turned it into a bowl that, if I remember correctly, is worth like 80-some thousand dollars because of the kind of wood that it was. In its block shape, it had minimal value. But when that wood turner took that first couple chisels, wood was flying everywhere. And what was he doing? He was eliminating everything that kept it from being what it could be. And that chisel was not healing in function. It was cutting in function. It was sharp. Paul's using sarcasm in the same way for this church so that they will realize that their exalted view of life and their questioning of Paul's sufficiency and adequacy as a tool of God because of his circumstance was a flawed view of life. That God was bringing out of the pressure and out of the struggle and out of the difficulty a vessel that was fit for the master's use. Be careful about what you listen to. And make sure you're thinking biblically so that a text like this makes sense for you. Because if you think it's all about blessing and prosperity and health and wealth, here's the danger. It's not that they're never quoting from Scripture. It's that they're misusing Scripture. All right, here's, here's one thing the Bible says, and I love this truth. The Willie Seitz has actually helped me to own this truth. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, you are seated with Christ today in heavenly places, okay? Meaning, I have, by virtue of grace and the gospel, been humbled by the truth that I have a place with God already. But I am not yet there. Because I'm going to tell you something, there ain't people like me sitting beside Jesus in heaven, okay? Not without being transformed by God's grace, okay? So the danger is that we we, 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 we take verses that make promises and we over-realize them. We don't realize when Philippians 1.6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. God has started something. God is committed to completing it in your life. That's why we trust Him. That's what gives us hope. That's what humbles us. So that our progress is always like, and you should. You should look around at your life at times as a believer and say, I used to be like that. I would have responded like that. But today, that happened. And it never produces a puffed-up sense of pride. It produces a deep humility because I know that that transformation is owing to the grace of God. That's why Paul says, I'm quite willing to walk the humble road so that God will be glorified in me because my greatest joy is seeing Christ exalted. God will never do that through a proud vessel. Paul's cruciform life in this sense then is powerful. So real quickly then, here's what happens. In 14 to 17, Paul changes metaphors. He's used a building metaphor. He's used a sewing metaphor. Now as he, so he's going to think about what he just said and think, okay, that was a little bit stiff. 
It dripped with sarcasm. It was pointed. It was perhaps a little rough. Paul says this. He says, I am not writing this to shame you, meaning to wound and injure, to downgrade you. It's powerful, isn't it? Because this is a church that could have used a lot of that, right? Plus, I'm not writing this to shame you. I am writing this to admonish you. The word warn and admonish, I don't know what you have in your translation, as my dear children. So all of a sudden now I find the metaphor has changed. Paul is speaking of his relationship to the church in Corinth as if he is their father. Okay, and the text is going to clarify what's going on. I am warning you as my dear children, meaning my aim is not to make you weep. My aim is to see you broken in repentance so that you can restore, be restored by the power of God. It's corrective talk. Because for Paul, it would be irresponsible to stand by and flinch and do nothing in light of the great need that was present. Okay? So... Paul talks about this fatherly relationship. And I want you to notice how he couches it, because this tells you that though he is being strong with them, he's being strong with them because he loves them. He says, I am writing to warn you as dear children, my dear children, for even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, 10,000, they used to have servants that would manage children. That was the privilege of wealthy people in the ancient world, that they would have, I think they were called pedagogies, to uh, raise their children. That person did not have final authority over that child. They had limited authority. That's how Paul sees himself with the church. You're God's children, but God birthed you into faith in Christ through my ministry. And that puts Paul in a unique position with them compared to anybody else, any other teacher. Remember what he said. I laid the foundation. Others are building upon it. I sowed the seed. Others watered it. Paul was there at and from the beginning. And what does that mean? It means that Paul felt in his heart a unique obligation of care and encouragement, of good parenting, a sense of prime responsibility for these people. Mom and dad. The church is not primarily responsible for your children. The school is not primarily responsible for your children. You are. Paul understood that in the context of his relationship to this church. It is, there's affection, but there's also urgency. Okay, Paul's assuming responsibility. As a grandfather, I've learned something. We have three granddaughters. They're the prettiest granddaughters in the world, I'm sure. I've learned something. If I'm holding Ava and I start to smell something, I have a privilege. I can say, Becca, your little girl needs help. I am not primarily responsible. I think of this in church at times when I'm sitting on that side and I see that red light go on. I've noticed something. When that red light goes on, I don't see 25 people jumping up and say, there's a need, I'm going to go meet it. You know why? Because there's a number up there that tells mommy or daddy that your child, your responsibility needs to be taken care of. Okay? That's how Paul felt about the church. He felt a divine obligation, a divine sense of responsibility. So sitting back when correction was needed was not an option. 
I, one of my passions as a dad, we had three girls that were, I don't know, probably six years apart. My parents had four kids, and in the month of June, our birthdays are literally four straight years in a row. We will be 57, 58, 59, 60 for two weeks. Okay, that's a prayer request. <laughs> With our three girls, one thing I could barely tolerate was sibling rivalry. Okay, and I took it dead serious. I said, you guys can burp at the table. You can act disgusting, but you can't attack each other. You know why? I feared what that kind of behavior would do to our girls. I told her, I'll put up with anything, but I will not flinch when action is needed, when it comes to your relationship to each other. I will fight for that. And when you pick on her, you're picking on dad. Okay, that's why I was off innumerable times, okay, because of human nature. Paul looks at this church and says, I cannot stand by and watch you bite and devour and destroy the work of God. Okay. And so he humbly comes in a cruciform lifestyle to call them to that beautiful picture of what the church can be. When we all together are faithful. And honoring God together. Paul says, I'm sending Timothy, verse 17, because he is a faithful example. He will live the life that God has called you to live. Paul lived what he taught. And when he was looking for someone to go and communicate his life and message, he took Timothy, timid, not because he was eloquent. He wasn't. Paul's like, come on, boy, stand up. Speak for yourself. That's what he has to do with Timothy. He sends him because he is a faithful example, not an eloquent orator. Because the church in Corinth didn't need another good speaker. They needed a humble, cruciform life to bring transformation. Now, folks, I had three more pages of notes and I don't have time. But here's what I want to tell you. Imagine what would happen at the chapel if we adopted Paul's humble approach life. It would free us to serve each other. It would free us from the, the degrading effect of pride. I'm not preaching this because I think it's an issue here. I'm preaching it because I think it's what the Word of God says. And you can look at it and check it. And if it fits, if the shoe fits, put it on. If you need to readjust your heart towards the difficult circumstance Stances that have come for your benefit and the benefit of those around you. Go to God and say, God, humble my heart. I'm so proud that when I struggle, I resent it. And I wonder why other people don't have the same experience. May God help us to live cruciform. To take up, deny yourself, and follow. All the way to death. Paul says, that's who we are. We're just being led on a procession. Nothing significant, no too heavy of a burden to bear because if you exalt yourself, if you think you're something, people will be gunning for you. But if you walk in humility, you're still going to have struggles. You're still going to have trials. There's still going to be seasons that a sovereign God allows to come to make you what he needs you to be for yourself and someone else around you. May God forgive us of our pride. Dangerous, always lurking, often hidden. God, help us to see it quickly. Kill pride in us by exalting the cross and your amazing grace.
Folks, the, the day that changes your life is the day that you see that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the day your life changes. May God bring that kind of change to us. May God grant us the willingness to suffer well in the seasons of difficulty. To embrace the cruciform, Christ-proclaiming life. Folks, you will never declare Jesus better than when you proclaim Him in struggle. You understand why it's there. May God, this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, humble us at the foot of the cross. This is a symbol of suffering for my sin. This is a picture a broken body, shed blood for me and for you. Not for me because I deserve it, but for my advantage and benefit by God's grace, undeserved. If you've never trusted Christ, I, want, I, want to, I beg of you this morning, as the elements are being passed out, maybe you just need to come to the front and kneel and say, God, today, I want you to forgive me. I want you to change my life. I want you to humble my pride. And make me a servant, a, a vessel fit for the master's use. Change my heart, God. And he'll transform your marriage. He'll transform your parenting. Transform your work life. He'll transform everything. Because you will go in a different person. For the glory of God. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. I'll just say this to you. This, this is a celebration that Christians enjoy to proclaim gratitude humbly to God. Do not think that by taking this that I improve my chances of my relationship with God. You don't. It's simply a symbol to provoke grateful thinking about the cross of Christ. If you've trusted Christ, Paul says, examine your heart. You got pride issues? Say it to God. Say it to God where you sit. Say, God, forgive me. Make me humble. Make me faithful. Make me Christ-exalting. Whatever it takes. Do it for me and for your glory. Father, as we come to the table this morning, let us come humbly, but let us, because of Christ, come boldly to hold and partake of symbols that proclaim truth that we do not deserve to enjoy, but do because of Christ, because of amazing grace. Oh God, help us in this moment to exalt Jesus above, far above ourself and far above all earthly things and treasure so that we may have him truly in our hearts this morning. We pray these blessings, Jesus, in your glorious name. Amen.